a woman becoming a mother, which is a big enough change as it is. There was so much more that was probably running through Mary's head as she listened to Gabriel. So here's a couple of the things with Mary's world that might have been going on through her head. Mary's encounter with Gabriel comes sometime before her marriage to Joseph. However, in Mary's world, engagement was legally binding. So by law, they were already considered husband and wife, even though the realities of living together and being intimate would wait until after the ceremony. To be pregnant outside of marriage as a part of God's plan is surprising. It's not how God works, it's not how Jewish law works, and it's not how her society works. So this is strange. So Mary would have been a woman pregnant before her marriage ceremony, and Joseph knows he's not the father. Mary would not and did not claim that someone assaulted her, making Mary's status really clear in her society. She was a suspected adulteress. That's how she would have been seen. For an adulteress who could be proven guilty, the law in Deuteronomy is sadly very clear. She was to be stoned to death. That's just how it was. But if an adulteress maintained their innocence, which is what Mary would have done, they would have had to undertake the process of bitter waters. This process doesn't come from Deuteronomy, but we learn about this through other Jewish sources. The woman would have been required to drink a mixture of dust and holy water and the written curse of a priest. If the woman didn't become sick, then she was acquitted. She was said to be innocent. This was the world of the suspected adulteress, and we may not understand it, and we may even condemn it in our age, but this was Mary's reality. Mary would have known what she might face. We know that Jesus didn't pursue the process of bitter waters, but Mary didn't know that when she says yes to Gabriel. There's more that Mary might face. Villagers might taunt and ostracize her and her son. He would be illegitimate. Joseph's reputation as an observant Jew would be called into question. He might even be legally required to divorce her, leaving her with a baby boy with no father. She was poor, and life would be really difficult under those circumstances. So these are the possibilities that might have surfaced in Mary's mind. But she says yes. Even amidst all of those realities, she says yes, and she doesn't bring up one of those things to Gabriel. Hey, what's your plan for this and this and this and this? She just says yes. Now Mary knows the stories of her people. She knows the stories of the Torah. She knows God, the God of Israel, who is merciful and who will look after her. She knew the stories of other women who were protected by God, women like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, women who are all mentioned by Matthew in his gospel and his genealogy that leads up to Joseph. This knowledge of and trust in God's faithfulness gives Mary the courage to say yes. She will suffer, but she won't be alone. Mary takes up the cross before Jesus was even born. Mary began to suffer before the Messiah suffered. Friends and family would never look at her the same. Nazareth would never look at her the same. Imagine trying to convince the people around you of the truth of Jesus' birth. There's only one time in all of human history when the story of immaculate conception was actually true. It's a big story to believe. Later evidence in the Gospels of how the people of Nazareth treated Jesus might tell us that very few believed her story. The theologian Martin Luther writes this about Mary. How many came into contact with her, talked and drank with her, who perhaps despised her and counted her but a common, 
poor, and simple village maiden, and who, had they known, would have fled from her in terror. The song that Mary writes after this encounter with Gabriel, as she visits her relative Elizabeth, gives us some clues as to where she found such great courage to say yes to such a life. Both Gabriel's announcement and Mary's song are full, chock full of Old Testament references, so many. But Mike actually addressed many of these last Sunday, um, and you can find that sermon on our website at LCC. So we're not actually going to lean into that too much today. Instead, I invite you to revisit verses 32 and 33. Gabriel is very clear about who Jesus is going to be before we even meet Jesus. Mary would have no doubts or misunderstandings. This child would be the long-promised Messiah. These words that Mary declares to Elizabeth in response to this knowledge are really interesting. Like This song has been labeled the Magnificat in Latin. Um, You can Google it. And it comes from the first lines of the song, which translated into Latin, sound magnificat anima mia dominum, which means glorifies my soul, the Lord. So we often refer to Mary's prayer prayer as the magnificat. So Mary begins this prayer in a really intimate way. She says, my soul exalts the Lord. My spirit glorifies the Savior. He has looked upon me, a humble and poor woman. This is very personal, and it's also a reversal, right? It should sound familiar. We've been talking a lot about reversals in Luke. A nobody who is now, a nobody is now going to be the mother of the messianic king. And Mary uses these words from generation to generation. And these tie her experiences of God's mercy to the story of her people since the time of Abraham. So these first few lines, this is a lovely response of praise from Mary. Just, just really nice, really lovely. But she doesn't stop there. She goes on. She says, he has demonstrated power with his arm. He has scattered those whose pride wells up from the sheer arrogance of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's lifted up those of lowly position. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. Okay, these are true things about God, really true things. Thanks, Mary. What does that have to do with you being pregnant? So there are a number of urban legends or oral traditions that claim that the reading of the Magnificat has been banned in various countries under various dictators. One claims that in the 1980s it was banned in Guatemala because it was stirring up the poor classes to move against the government. They believed that change could happen. The Guatemalan government deemed it too subversive. Another claims it was banned in Argentina by the military junta after the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, whose children all disappeared during the Dirty War, plastered the words of this prayer up all over the main city plaza. One other story says that in India, the Magnificat was prohibited from being sung in churches during British rule. This story claims that Gandhi asked for the song to be read aloud each time a British flag was lowered after their rule ended. I say urban legends because I actually could not find a single primary source to support any of these stories, even though these stories are all over the internet. Now, my own limitations probably got in the way there. I can't Google things in other languages, so that doesn't help. And also, I think it's safe to say that free press is not a thing that dictators are fond of. So it could be that these were just very much orally passed on. I'm not really ready to completely discount these stories as untrue, but true or not, we are reminded that in countries where people lack basic liberties to say what they think, 
to worship in the ways that they hope, to acquire the basic things that they need, that a bold call for justice is subversive because it is a call for change, for the wrong to be made right. Not long after Mary sings this song, you might remember this from the story, Magi from the east seek out Herod, the cruel king of Israel, to find the baby boy who they thought would someday be king. Herod's response is to kill all of the children two years and younger in Bethlehem. If Herod thought the mere news of a new king from some strangers of another land was was a subversive threat to his power, imagine how he must have reacted if he ever heard Mary's song. This was a song about turning injustices around and power upside down. Mary's song is about politics. It's about justice, and it's dangerous. She is a voice from the bottom of society, announcing that justice has finally arrived. It's here. Again, a little bit of context, looking at Mary's song through first century eyes can be helpful. So Herod the Great is king of Israel. Herod is a man who had his own family members assassinated. He taxed Israel far beyond its capacity, leaving its people poor and destitute. He covered Israel in shrines to pagan gods, and he completely disregarded Israel's laws. (laughs) Keep that in mind when you hear these words. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. God has sent the rich away empty. He has filled the hungry with good things. Mary has certain people in mind when she's saying these words. But even more than Herod the Great, consider Caesar Augustus, who was the ruler of the entire Roman Empire during this time. A little history lesson here. Very, very short history lesson. Rome's history can be divided into the Republic period and the Principate period. Okay, the Republic period was like 510 to 27 BC, and the Principate period is like 27 BC to AD 284. Caesar Augustus is responsible for transitioning Rome from the Republic period into the Principate period. He is the adopted son of Julius Caesar, a common name that we know. When Caesar Augustus seized Rome, he ended a really bloody civil war, and he brought what the Romans called the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, or Peace to Rome. After Julius's death, Caesar's adopted, Augustus's adopted father, Julius is declared a god. He is a god, right? Um, and so Augustus is the son, of, the son of the god. Augustus is the son of the god. Caesar Augustus brought peace, so he is also Rome's savior. The rise of Caesar Augustus throughout the Roman Empire would have sounded like this, and they called this the good news. Caesar Augustus, son of God, our Savior has brought peace to the world. It's not accidental that the angels who declared a different good news to Mary and later to the shepherds use many of similar words as the Roman Empire. To Mary, the angel says he'll be the son of God. To the shepherds, the angels say, good news for all the people. A Savior has been born. He will bring peace to the earth. Mary's good news directly counters the good news, the gospel coming out of Rome. The true son of God, the true savior of the world, who would bring the true gospel of peace for the world. Mary is declaring that Herod's days are numbered and Caesar Augustus's days are numbered. Or so Mary believes at this point in the story. 
The point is that the gospel of Jesus was a dangerous story to tell. And who is the first person to tell this gospel story? It's Mary, who rushes off to Elizabeth and tells her exactly the words of the gospel, the words of the angels. It's Mary who took the words of the angel to her and the words of the angels to the shepherds and the strange visitation of the magi. She pondered these things. She considered these things. And she declares a dangerous story. Jesus is king and Augustus is not. Angel said so. Shepherd said so. Magi said so. Big old star in the sky said so. The physical baby she held in her arms was proof of God's mercy and proof of Mary's story. Now Mary, like the disciples, like many of Jesus' followers, would go on a journey with Jesus and come to understand more fully what the true king and the true Messiah actually meant, what peace for the world actually meant, that it was a far greater thing than overthrowing one Roman ruler and creating a new earthly kingdom. And I have to think that Mary must have begun to have an inkling of this when soon after Jesus is born, she and Joseph take him to the temple in Jerusalem to be dedicated. There they encounter an old man who challenges Mary to modify her traditional and triumphal story. Simeon, whose song has a lot of similarities to Mary's song. It's another declaration of the good news. But he adds that this new kingdom will come through sorrow and suffering. And a sword, he says, will pierce Mary's soul. There will be justice, but it will come at a cost. And it will not be what you think it might be. In 1933, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian, he gave a sermon on this text on the third Sunday of Advent. He begins that sermon by saying this. The song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is also the most passionate, the wildest, and the one might almost say the most revolutionary. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary as we have often seen her portrayed in paintings. The Mary who is speaking here is passionate, carried away, proud, enthusiastic. There is none of the sweet, wistful, or even playful tone of many of our Christmas carols, but instead a hard and strong, relentless hymn about the toppling of the thrones and the humiliation of the lords of this world, about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. This is the sound of the prophetic woman of the Old Testament, prophetic women of the Old Testament, Deborah, Judith, Miriam, coming to life in the mouth of Mary. Mary, who is seized by the power of the Holy Spirit, who humbly and obediently lets it be done unto her as the Spirit commands her, and who lets the Spirit blow where, where it wills. She speaks by the power of the Spirit about God's coming into the world and about the advent of Jesus Christ. In this sermon, Bonhoeffer goes on to say that women throughout the ages in suppressed societies have noticed how revolutionary Mary's words are. For Bonhoeffer, a revolution can begin any time for any of us in the way that we celebrate Christmas if we are willing to see as God sees. You might already know that Bonhoeffer lived during the time of the Second World War and the rise of the Nazi German Party, the German Nazi Party, wow. <clears throat> and he despaired at the ways his German Christian brothers and sisters turned a blind eye to the Nazi party. The National Church of Germany had endorsed the Nazi party. But Bonhoeffer was a leader 
in what was called the Confessing Church. They were determined to only confess Christ alone. Bonhoeffer could have escaped Germany. He knew that he was going to come under fire, and many of his contemporaries did. But he didn't feel it was right to abandon the church in its darkest hour. His books, including The Cost of Discipleship, a title that takes on much meaning, were banned. He spoke out against Hitler's rule. He worked against it, and eventually he was captured. He was held in a concentration camp for two years, and then he was hung in 1945. He would preach to the other political prisoners with him, and an RAF pilot who was a prisoner with him remembered these words from his final sermon. He said, this for me, the end, the beginning of life. I see Mary's courage and faith in Bonhoeffer, and it would seem he also found great encouragement from Mary's song. Mary's song is one of unexpected grace. It's a song of the powerless. It declares what God does as the powerful deliverer of the oppressed and the needy. God turns toward the suffering, but it is also a reversal of norms and expectations of a high God who becomes low, who calls the lowly to be his agents. If this reversal sounds familiar, I hope it does, because this has come up a lot in the book of Luke, and it will continue to do so in Luke and Acts. The true gospel of the true Messiah challenges our ideas about justice today just as much as it did in Roman times. You know, many feminist and liberation theologies tend to read the Magnificat largely in economic and political and social terms, and traditional theology tends to just spiritualize it. But the language and the imagery of the Magnificat comes from Israel's religious and social and political and ethnic life, and it includes both the spiritual and the physical, just as Jesus himself is both God and human. Most importantly, God the Almighty restructures reality through the unmighty. The unmighty, like courageous Mary, who proclaimed a dangerous gospel before Jesus was even born, and who took up the cross and suffered for the sake of the gospel before Jesus suffered for us all. The real Mary will always point us straight to Jesus, the Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, I am always so grateful for this word that you have given us, for the people that you have placed in the word, for the promises that you have declared and that you have shown to be true in your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for the example of your servant Mary, and we pray that we would take her courage to heart and that we could respond to the gospel news just as she does. God, open our eyes to the justice and injustices around us. Amen.